you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com slash events. All right, we're rolling. <clears throat> After my brother Paul was born and before I was, my mother got pregnant. The doctor said it was a girl, but my mom had a miscarriage and it broke her heart. All she ever wanted was a boy and a girl. When she got pregnant again, I disappointed her by being male, as did my little brother Manuel. Finally fed up with all these boys, my mother made a deal with God. She promised to make a pilgrimage for Semana Santa to honor the Virgen de Guadalupe in Mexico if God would grant her a baby girl. My sister Cynthia was born nine months after that deal, and as soon as she could, my mom took off one Easter to pay her respects to the Virgin Mary. Damn, the holy child. My sister grew up the favorite of my father and mother, the only girl among four boys, and with that privilege came all this pressure to be perfect. Most of our childhood, she had to live by a certain set of rules that the rest of us boys didn't. That's a lot to put on anyone, and an impossible standard to have for others and for ourselves. For most of her life, she followed these rules strictly. And then, when she was 16, she got pregnant. Depending on who you were back then, it was dramatic, scary, or even heartbreaking. It shattered this antiquated idea my mom and dad had in their head about what a perfect daughter should be. And if you ask me, honestly, I think it was one of the best things that ever happened to this family. Nine months after the chaos of that revelation, my sister, the holy child, had a little boy. She named him Angel. I'm Eric Galindo, and this is Wild. This is Wild, a show about what it's like to grow up during the pandemic. Season one, Home Forever. We had worked our asses off to like prepare this pitch and we sat in the parking lot, I think it was before our FX meeting. And we both just sat there and we were like, oh my God, what if we don't sell this show? That's Linda Yvette Chavez. The first time I met Linda, I felt like she was a little nervous to talk to me. I was a reporter working for the New York Times, assigned to do a story about Linda and her creative partner, Marvin Lemus. But after a few moments, probably when she realized I was just a hood kid from Southeast LA, we clicked. And talking to Linda felt like talking to someone I grew up with. It makes perfect sense, because Linda grew up just a few blocks away from where I did, and her family sounds a lot like my family. Linda grew up in Norwalk, California, with her parents and three siblings. 
Yeah, my parents, um, they met in East LA and they were there for a long time and then eventually moved to Norwalk, which is where, that's not where I was born, but um, where I mostly grew up. And like I said, we were a working class family. My dad was blue collar, worked for a, for a truck parts company. And, you know, my mom was a stay-at-home mom. And because of that, obviously, like there was a lot of sacrifice financially because she really wanted to be there for us because we grew up in an area that was mixed income, but there was like still some gang activity. And like there was, you know, she had fears around like if I'm not there to be able to like raise my kids, like they're going to end up in situations. And, you know, some of us ended up in certain little situations here and there, but she did a great job and uh, did her best like every parent does. And both of my parents did. Norwalk is a place maybe you've never heard of, but you've probably seen on TV or in films. It's a city in Southeast Los Angeles that's kind of hood, but also kind of an idyllic suburb. And because of that, it has been the setting of some iconic movie moments, like the miniature golf scene in The Karate Kid, most of the high school scenes in Grease 2, and that wild scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where stuntman Cliff Booth somehow fights Bruce Lee to a draw. No mames. Given all that Hollywood history, it kind of makes sense to me that Linda would wind up with Hollywood dreams of her own. And during the pandemic, she got to achieve her dream of being a director by overcoming something that she's dealt with her whole life, imposter syndrome. So I was wondering, like, you know, how you would describe imposter syndrome and, you know, just walk me through those feelings. Well, one, imposter syndrome to me is the fear of not being good enough. It's the fear that if you don't perform at a certain level, somehow your inherent value as a human or as a person is nothing or not enough. That if you come up and you you do something, it's only by sheer luck that it happened, that there's no way that your own skill, your own abilities, your own talents, your own passion led you there. And I think a lot of those feelings came from childhood. A lot of those things within our families, but then how our families um, function due to the systems that they were brought up in. You know, like we're all the children of colonialism, right? Like We all, to some degree, have grown up or have been exposed to systems of power that tell some people they're good enough and some people some people are not good enough, some people are much better, right? Especially in a white supremacist culture, it's like you're not good for XYZ reasons. And we think that those things like kind of pass away with like history or time, like, oh, that's in the past, but we don't realize how much it's like ingrained in our DNA. And it's passed down generation after generation. I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of our communities struggle so much with mental health or violence or poverty. Like, I don't think that's a coincidence that so many of us have imposter syndrome. There's beauty in the culture. Like, I'm so proud of how hardworking my dad, this ranchero from Michoacan, Guadalajara. Like, I'm so proud of that. But it's also like I was taught that, like, you work really hard. And if you don't, if you don't do it perfectly, then there's something wrong with you. And I think it comes from this bigger picture that we've all experienced to some degree. Is it a feeling of not belonging? Like, because no, you've, you've accomplished a lot. Is it like no matter how successful you become, you, do you still feel that sort of deep down inside somewhere? Do you still feel the imposter syndrome sometimes? Oh, my God. Yeah. When I started starting out, it took me many years to get through it because um, like, there's many layers to, I think, imposter syndrome. There's the part of you that feels like I'm not talented and I'm worthless. 
And then for folks from different classes, it's like not believing that you belong in a place because it's for rich people. It's for people who have opulence and, um, and access. Part of it, I think, too, is just growing up in a working class family and low income. It was a beautiful, lovely upbringing, but there was definitely a lot of, um, you know, ranchero ways. My dad was a ranchero. He came from Mexico, I guess, like Michoacán. Like, he always says, yo soy un animal. Yo soy como los animales. <laughs> He's changed a lot now in his retirement, but like, he was just like very classic Mexican machista man who, luckily for me, still had showed his love through like like um, providing a, a home for us and putting food on the table and showing up with physical things. But I think for me personally, it's going to love that I'm talking about this. For me personally, <laughs> I think the emotional piece of it, which I think a lot of folks who are Mexican or Latino growing up with, with fathers who um, maybe grew up from from meager means like there's you lose a lot of that connection emotionally of like hey tell me you love me tell me that I'm good tell me that I did a good job don't tell me the parts that I didn't do well in and I think that type of kind of um that type of always trying to reach for that perfection and that good enough and that love can lead a lot of times to these feelings of lack of self-worth and then sometimes we have to reparent ourselves you know I totally get it because my dad's also, you know, he's from Sinaloa. He's always like, I lead by example. I'm the best. So you got to be the best kind of bullshit. Yeah, where does you know? that shit come from, Eric? Like, what the <laughs> I don't fuck? Know. Like, it's like, you, it's like, it's not good enough. Like, where does it come from? Like, I really want to understand. I mean, I said colonialism earlier. I think, earlier, so my yeah. I think well, you know, I think it's also like they're in this new country. Yeah. They know they can't fuck up because if they fuck up, they get deported. They can get arrested. Mm-hmm. They can get beat. Good point. Like, that's how I saw it growing up, where it was just like, oh, my dad is, like, failure is not an option for him because he's got all this on him. Yeah. But, like, for me, failure is such an option. You know, like, I'm just <laughs> like, yo, yo, I don't know how to do that, dad. Like, please stop asking me to do things I don't know how to do, you know? Oh, my God. I wish I was, I could do, or I'm getting there now. Now I'm getting there. But, like, I just, growing up, I was like, okay, yes, you want me to be perfect? Got it. Hold on. You know? No, yeah. It's probably easier for guys, too, right? Like, to just be like, you know, fuck you. I'm not doing what you want me to do. Mm, that's real. Right? And, yeah. And for women, you got that pressure of, like, being the perfect Mexican-American daughter. You know, like, <laughs> be be right. Because I see it, like, my dad and my sister, they have, they have a relationship with my dad. Like, he loves my sister more than all of us, right? Like, it's very obvious. But he's such a machista to her, you know? He's like... Can you, you know, serve me dinner, breakfast? Can you serve me dinner? Mm. Like, but I, I think about, like, when you're telling me your stories, I'm like, oh, I see. Like, that that has, like, this long-term effect. And I think you're right. I think it is systemic. Like, Yeah, no, I do think it is systemic. It, it's systemic. It's, like, all the different parts of the puzzle, right? It's white supremacy. It's patriarchy. It's, it's all this class. We kind of live in a society that ignores those things. Like we don't have the tools or the resources to identify them and give them names so that we can then work with them and heal them and make them better. I think that's like a term that um, psychologists use, but they, they call it, the term is name it to tame it. Like until you can give the thing that you're feeling and experiencing a name and can decode it in a sense, then it's hard to tame it.
All right, all right. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the first episode of Majority, Majority Peoples. Peoples. Brought to you by Wild. Majority People is the show that represents the ears, reactions, and thoughts of people of color. Today on Majority Peoples, we are exploring the only subject this show cares about. The impacts of colonization on generations, past, present, and future. I'm your host, Montel Wild. And today, we'll be getting the reactions of some of the most outlandish examples of colonized rhetoric. Clap your hands if you can feel the irony already. Uh, okay. Did not expect a clap there. Well, have you felt the effects of colonization today? The answer is emphatically yes, especially if you are a person that identifies as Native American, Black, an immigrant, person of color, or anybody that takes a rational point of view of things. So, basically everybody. That's right. Majority Peoples is the fictitious show that doesn't sugarcoat Let's roll the first clip. Build that wall! Build that wall! Build that wall! Right. Uh, it took less than a second for our research team to confirm that that was Colonizer 101. It also took us less than half a second to find the most appropriate response. Let's take a call. Let's hear from the majority people's listeners. Producer, patch them through. Hello, America. <laughs> Fuck you! Well, that might have been a little rude, maybe even a little aggressive, but that's the tone of our show. On that note, join us next time on Majority Peoples. Systemic oppression be damned. Linda managed to make Southeast LA and all her ancestors proud. That's after the break. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. Alleyest has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite LA restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com events. Now back to the show. Linda left Norwalk to go to college, first to Stanford and then to USC. She told her parents she was going to go be a lawyer, earn well, and help end her family's financial struggles. But her parents actually told her that they thought she'd be a good writer, that maybe she could chase those Hollywood dreams of writing and directing TV and film. Her parents were right. Only Linda, still plagued by imposter syndrome, would take a while to get there. So I remember walking into spaces and like being very much 
much more connected to the valets and like the workers and I was to the people who worked, who were executives and like writers and producers. Like I was all about like, hey, what's up, man? Like, como estas? A ver, mira, aquí está mi carro. I know it looks really cheap and dumpy. They'd be like, ah, no, no te preocupes, está todo bien. You know, I felt like that put me at ease when I would come to these places and it would feel so odd going in and feeling like I'm not a part of this world and like, who am I to who am I to be here in this space? Until then, it feels like chaos and confusion. And you're kind of like, why is it like this? Why does this keep happening to me? Why do I keep having the same patterns? Why do I fall into the same cycles where like I get really depressed if I don't feel like my short film was good enough? And so then I back out and decide not to do it and don't ever come back to directing until like years later when I direct my first episode of television. You know, like, you know, I don't know who I'm talking about, but maybe me. Just like Linda... Most of the producers on Wild are first generation. And it's not about if imposter syndrome creeps in, it's about when. So question, have you ever had imposter syndrome? Please confirm that that's not a a trick question. Not a trick question. Yes. Yes, pretty much every day at some point. Really, Um, every day? Yeah. Yes, but honestly, it didn't really start until I came to the US. Because I don't know if I experience imposter syndrome on my own. It's always when there's an audience or an evaluation happening to me. I struggle with just speaking to four or five people at a time. Are there things that you tell yourself? Uh, What helped me was having that mentality of team sports. I've played sports where... The kids whose parents were well off and bought them all like the best equipment. And I had to like borrow gloves or whatever it may be. And yet when when the game was on, all that matters is can you make the play? Oh, I always fall back on my strengths. You know what I'm saying? I'm a fighter. And so like I'm well prepped for this moment. So I just carry it with me and do it anyway. Some of these dudes might look better than me, but none of them talk better than me. Nobody raps better than I do. Yeah, I just, like, start jumping up and down. Like, I just, like, ah, come on, come on, yes, you can do it. Like, so you jump up and you jump yeah. up and down. <laughs> yeah, come on, come on. Come on, come on, come on. So you got this, Marie. Yeah, you, you can do like this. That. Like, you, like, it's going to be okay. Like... I, I know, like, a lot of voices in your head, but those voices are just voices. And I also keep applying for things like I'm not qualified yet to do and, like, just kind of shooting for the stars. Lead with the obvious. They wanted you to be here. Linda found ways to cope with imposter syndrome and managed to forge a dope career at a lot of different levels, including doing some work with Univision and working with the Sundance Institute to hone her writing skills. And then she even wrote and directed a short film that didn't go as well as she liked, which coupled with the imposter syndrome put her off directing for a while. Then in 2017, a web series she co-created with another first-gen kid from the hood, Marvin Limas, about love, family, and gentrification set in L.A.'s Boyle Heights neighborhood started to get some serious Hollywood attention. 
They got invited to go pitch the series at a giant studio. And then the imposter syndrome creeped in again. But I will speak to like our first pitch. And we were both like, oh my God, what if we don't sell this show? Like we just spent like so much of our lives like on this like creative baby and these characters in this world. And we were just like, okay, we have to be prepared that if at the end of this, nobody bites, nobody wants this, like almost felt like losing a baby in a sense. Cause it's like, okay, that creative thing that you just invested so much of your love into is going to be gone. And, and both of us, like we were these first gen brown kids who like, we're also really fearless. Like as much as we had the imposter syndrome we were dealing with, we're both like kind of little badasses who like don't give a fuck. We're like, this is who we are. This is where we come from. This is how we're going to throw it down. Or you don't like it, pues, ni modo. Like you are, you're missing out. But this is what's so cool about this. And we went into it really carrying that fire and that energy and that confidence into every room we walked into. And I remember that that parking lot moment being like, oh my God, like it's possible. It's possible we're going to end all of this and have nothing. And that that was a scary thing. They actually offered to buy the show in the room. From there, I think there was freedom in knowing that we didn't kill ourselves for nothing. That like, okay, we have one offer and now we can go into every offer or every room after this feeling much more confidence. Do you remember the first time you went into Netflix? Luckily, we I think at that point we had done a lot of pitches already. We had been up like late, like like we would do a pitch and then we'd go home and revise it. We would be like, okay, that land, joke didn't land. Let's think of a new one. Let's like punch it up here. Let's revise there. Let's cut there. Let's you know Netflix likes this. Let's bring it in this way or Showtime or whoever it was. We always were revising based on what we had just pitched. So it was like an ongoing process. So when we walked into Netflix, we had had some good enough of a good experience, but also felt like. We felt good, and I think part of our process was also just accepting what's for us is for us, you know, and what isn't isn't. And strangely, that pitch, like, was more, like, neutral than the rest. So we kind of left leaving, like, was that, did that go well? Like, we were, like, not sure, and and it did, obviously. Like, obviously, and here we are, (laughs) season two. Cinco dollars for un burrito? We've been giving you free burritos for years. Yo canté por esos tacos. Nobody asked you to sing. You ain't chente, bro. Linda Yvette Chavez and Marvin Lemus sold their Boyle Heights gentrification dramedy, Hentified, to Netflix in 2019. And it debuted on the streaming giant in February of 2020. The show, about families like Linda's and mine, was so popular it made Netflix's top 10 list and got much critical acclaim leading to a second season. For the second season, Marvin and Linda were put in charge of running the whole show. I'm wondering, like, so in those moments where you're going into these rooms and, like, you have, you know, obviously this imposter syndrome, is it it a feeling of, like, oh, they're going to realize we don't belong here? I think there's also the layer of, like, again, racial, social... Um, gender, like all those things come into play as well in terms of like seeing two brown kids and like what historically you've seen a creator or a showrunner or an executive producer look like. And then having to kind of fight against that very unconscious bias that a lot of folks still have and will continue to have probably for a long time for towards for a lot of communities. So there's also the sense of like, they don't think I'm good enough because inherently they don't believe someone who looks like me can do this. So I think there's multiple layers to that imposter syndrome that we're taught to feel and believe that we are not capable of these things because historically we haven't been allowed to be. 
uh, to take these things on and do these things. So we're fighting multiple battles when we're thinking about imposter syndrome, I think. And does it get worse the more successful you get? Or does success actually put more pressure on you to feel it even more? If you're looking for success to be a cure to your anxiety, you're looking in the wrong place. Because <laughs> at the end of the day, like the way that the, the, all we are doing is experiencing life in the world. It's our, our reactions to those experiences that really defines how we live our lives. And I, I think that it was a transition for Marvin and I. I won't speak for him fully, but I know for myself and I know that he and I obviously had a, a lot of conversations. Um, I think the transition to having that much responsibility was definitely a difficult one. Learning how to manage, learning how to not lose yourself, your integrity, your, um, your self-worth. Your belief that you're good enough to be there was definitely a daily battle for us, like coming in and out, because you're fighting so many battles already um, with any production. It's already, you know, a battlefield. <laughs> and then add on top of that, like trying to stay true to yourself and trying to convince yourself daily that you are good enough. I think there was a lot of that. But I think it's just like the ocean. Every wave is going to be different. And I think that first season was definitely a big wave that we got like not, you know, we had to like get knocked over by and learn how to like recover from the from the ocean and and eventually you learn how to dive under the wave and bob over the wave <laughs> and like back up and maybe you get tossed a little bit but you're like okay I know how to get back up and I think that that's really ultimately the way to get to a more more stronger confident place and also a place of feeling safe because a lot of imposter syndrome like I said comes from fear and this fear that you're not safe that at any minute someone's going to yell at you, at any minute someone's going to tell you you're not good enough, at any minute someone's going to say, you fucked up, you fucked up, now what? And I think we have to, as humans, um, create spaces that feel safe, even in environments that might feel like chaos. Do you, was there a moment, like, in you know, in that first season where you felt like it clicked, like, I'm, we're here, this is dope? Yeah, I think for me that happened truly in the second season. I think learning everything I learned in first season and getting through to the other side, seeing like the product, going through the process of press and marketing and like seeing what that all was like and felt like and then coming back to myself and trying to learn from the lessons of like, what is it that, how did I feel after this? What is it that I want to feel the next time around and how do I craft my environment and the people I work with and like the work that I'm doing so that it makes one, my life easier, two, makes it fun and exciting, and three, doesn't feel like the end of the world all the time. Because that's another thing that I think comes with imposter syndrome. You make one mistake and you're like, oh my God, the universe just collapsed. And that's usually not the case. Usually everything's fine. <laughs> like nothing's wrong. <laughs> right. 2020 wound up being a big year for Linda despite the pandemic. Besides the incredible success of Hentified, she announced two big Hollywood films that she's written on, and she finally got back into the director's chair. You know, Marvin, again, my champion advocate in all of this, who, like, uh, really advocated for me to direct an episode. And I just felt like, you know, why I felt the confidence to come into it was, one, having, you know created the first season and been there on set with directors and been, you know, giving my notes to directors, trying to really, you know get what I wanted out of scenes and, and episodes. 
and we had incredible directors, but I was able to like experience like, oh, I have a lot of thoughts on like how I want performances to be, how I want visually, how I want it to look. I felt, and having had a directing background way back in the day, like I had a lot of vision and thought around the things that I wanted to do. So I came into it feeling pretty confident because show running, managing a whole show, like is very similar to directing. Like you're answering a million questions. You're having to get in there and be the calm one in the middle of a whole storm of people who are not calm. Uh, so all of that stuff are, are things that I excel at because of, again, 12 years of therapy. I can like, shit can hit the fan and I could be like, it's going to be okay. That's kind of one of the things that I get a lot from people. And I got a lot during my directing. They're like, a lot of crew being like, man, I really like working with you because like, I feel so calm. <laughs> I don't feel like everything's going to fall apart. And I think for me, it's a testament to the work I've done on myself, which is to say that like, okay, this has fallen apart, but it's my reaction to it that's going to determine where we go next. I also give myself the freedom to make mistakes. And I think that's kind of the difference for me between the last time I directed and this time, which was years ago. And the minute that I was like, I'm allowed to not be perfect. The minute like I let myself be free to be imperfect is the minute that like imposter syndrome started to kind of like shed. My nephew Angel really changed all of our lives. For my sister, it gave her something to love and live for in ways she's never experienced. For my parents, it gave them a baby to obsess over. And it even gave me a new perspective on the world. When Angel was born, I was kind of lost and depressed. No job, no real prospects. And since my sister was going to dental school full-time and everyone else worked, I got to stay with Angel all day. We hung out together a lot. And pretty soon, I started to see the world through his eyes. It was suddenly beautiful again. So I decided to get off the mat and try. A few years later, I was away in Washington, D.C. working as a columnist when my sister had a traumatic experience. I came home to find her and Angel living with my parents again. And they had this little shaggy white Maltese named Blanca a therapy dog, to help her deal with the trauma. Part of that trauma was physical, but a lot of it was mental. Some of it was this imposter syndrome that maybe she failed at life or at love, which is not true. I think she succeeded at being strong enough to leave a bad situation and forge ahead thanks to the unconditional love she had for her son and eventually for herself. But I get that feeling she had, especially after talking to Linda. And I'm realizing now that love and romantic relationships is probably the only time I've ever felt the kind of imposter syndrome Linda talked about. In fact, I don't think I was able to love someone I'm not related to in an unconditional way until after I came back from D.C. to see my sister, Angel, and their little doggy. That first time she laid eyes on me, Blanca just ran right up to me and jumped into my arms like I was her long lost love. I guess I was in a way. And she was mine. Blanca showed me how to love a stranger and expect nothing in return. I had a dream. All that 
highlights, uh, hugging my mom for the first time since 2019. That was was pretty sweet. So my wife and I just celebrated our 14th year as a couple. It's always a cool time of the year because we're just reminded, you know, of that love we got for each other. And, And true story, she is my preschool sweetheart. And I was like, wow, when the routine becomes routine and when things get tiring, like if we can play cards and, and have a great time, I, like I could play cards with you for the rest of my life. That was Megan Tan, a producer on this show who pushed herself to do online dating during the pandemic. That's on the next episode of Wild. This episode of Wild was written and produced by Eric Galindo, Marina Pena, Megan Tan, Shaka Malni, and me, Lushi Kwaba. It was sound designed by me and engineered by Eduardo Perez. Megan Tan is our senior producer. Our producers are Victoria Alejandro and Lushi Kwaba. Marina Pena is our associate producer and fact checker. Shaka Malni is an associate producer at large and our announcer. Eric Galindo is our host and editor. Jessica Pilot is our TAM producer. Our executive producers are Antonia Serejino and Leo G. Shout out to Marisa Klugmorataya for shooting our album art and Steve Rosa for the assist. The theme song is I Got Everything by Miss 007. Our website, lastudios.com, is designed by Andy Cheatwood and the digital team, and by a marketing team who also created our branding. Wild is a production of LA Studios. Special thanks to the team over there, including Taylor Kaufman, Kristen Hayford, Kristen Muller, and Leo G. This program is made possible in part by Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. Woo! I nailed it, I think. This is Eric G. I'll catch you next time. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.